The Lymphoma Voices podcast brings you a series of conversations around topics of interest for people affected by lymphoma, the fifth most common cancer in the UK. Hello, I'm Dallas Pounds and I'm Director of Services at Lymphoma Action. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Leslie Carter, who is the Clinical Lead for Professionals and Practice at Age UK. Hello, Leslie. Hello. Now, Leslie and I share a passion, if I can call it that, for talking about challenging conversations and practical preparedness with regard to loss of capacity, mental capacity and end of life. So just to give you a little bit of background, I'm a nurse by background and I spent over 25 years working in palliative and end of life and hospice care. And I've always been passionate about changing societies relationship with death and dying and mortality. Leslie, do you want to tell us a bit about your role at Age UK? Yes, well, I also am a nurse. I joined Age UK about six years ago after such a long career in the NHS, and I head up professionals and practice now. And this gives me the great opportunity of thinking about what are the issues that older people need, particularly around end of life, and how can we get that practical information to help them and their families to really understand what's going on, mm. how to make good decisions, and how to live really well with those decisions. Fantastic. Thank you, Leslie. We know that receiving a, a diagnosis of cancer or any life-limiting illness can be incredibly difficult. And even if curative treatment is possible, it can still make us think about our own mortality. And even without a life-changing diagnosis, preparing for changes to our mental capacity, to our ability to make decisions for ourselves and make our wishes known at the end of life is a really important part of living. And some people we know may not want to think about this or discuss these issues, and it still remains a bit of a society taboo. But Leslie, you and I know from our practice that it can be empowering to have these conversations and make these plans. It can actually be reassuring for everybody involved and take away that element of worry, knowing that things are in order and that conversations have been had. But we appreciate it can be a really, really difficult subject. So hopefully in this podcast, we're going to talk around this topic and cover such things as how to think about planning and getting your affairs in order, the sorts of things you might want to have conversations about, and that they're often challenging. So hopefully we'll be able to provide a little bit of reassurance and maybe some top tips during this podcast. So Leslie, when do you think we should actually start to think about what our wishes are and, and about times where we can't speak for ourselves or maybe when we are facing our mortality? When do you think is a good time to be having those conversations? Well, the best time, obviously, is before we get to that position, around the table with a cup of tea or a glass of wine, when you've got everyone together, perhaps just talking about you know, your will, who you want to leave things to, what you'd like to happen. We feel okay about that because most of us have a will now 
we start to think about our social media, what we're going to do, but we feel very less confident about talking about ourselves and what would happen if we had some sudden event and we weren't able to make our own decisions. I think sometimes we think that we're just talking about when we are at end of life, but of course we're not. We want to be prepared to what would you like to happen if you couldn't speak for yourself? So that could be if you'd have a stroke, if you suddenly had an accident and was unconscious oh. and you couldn't make decisions. If you haven't had that general conversation with your important people and they are perhaps called to help make a decision, how do they feel? How would they do that? Mm. And I think that's a really important point, isn't it, Leslie, that actually these conversations are challenging and take a little bit of bravery sometimes um, in, in some situations. But the earlier we have them, the better for everybody, isn't it? Because as you rightly say, we may not see end of life coming to us. We also may not see a lack of ability to make decisions coming our way. I think that's right. And I'm sure that we've all done this. Somebody starts a conversation and we say, oh, don't talk like that. You'll be around forever. I know yes. I used to say that to my grandmother. What that does, of course, is that closes that conversation down. And that person might have got all their energies and all their worries in one place ready to share it with you and you've shut that conversation down so I think we have to be very aware of what people are trying to say to us so Leslie we're just we're talking there about lack of mental capacity and I think that's quite a quite a broad term isn't it that many people might not understand um what do, what do you think people need to know about lack of capacity what does that mean for us well, I think it because it's quite scary, isn't it? Lack of mm. capacity. So it can either be something that's permanent or something that's temporary. So we have to be able to make a specific decision at a specific time. And to help us make that decision, we have to understand the information that's being given to us. We have to be able to keep it in our mind long enough to weigh that up to make a decision and then we have got to be able to communicate that decision in however we communicate normally. Sometimes people are able to make simple decisions, so what to wear or what to eat, but they're unable to make more complicated decisions because they cannot keep the information in their mind and they can't weigh it up. Right. And if that is the case, that means that that moment you have lost mental capacity and probably cannot make decisions about health or finances. Just talking about lack of capacity at the moment, we're not necessarily talking about somebody losing that ability for forever, are we, for long term? Lack of capacity, lack of mental capacity and the ability to make decisions can actually be temporary, can't it? Or it can be within a situation. As you yeah. rightly say, if we were to have an accident and were in a hospital bed, for instance, and unable to speak for ourselves, we leave those people around us guessing, don't we, what our wishes might have been if we hadn't had those conversations. And that can happen to any of us at any time. So I think our message is to have those conversations 
as early as it feels right for you and for your family and for your friends. Yes, I think that's right. So if we believe that somebody isn't able to make those decisions, then presumably we should have a conversation with their healthcare professional to see whether that really is the case or not. I think this is exactly right. You need to go along to the GP or to the clinic and, and talk about your worries and concerns. So, Leslie, I think there are a range of different ways that people, individuals and families can prepare for that lack of capacity or end of life. And I think, should we just touch briefly on a couple of legal preparations before we we talk more broadly? So one that people often um, will refer to are lasting powers of attorney. And lasting powers of attorney are for that situation where somebody loses their capacity to make decisions, aren't they? Not end of life. These are about when somebody is still alive and unable to make decisions. And there are two types of lasting power of attorney. Lasting power of attorney for health and welfare and lasting power of attorney for property and financial affairs. And people can choose to make one or both types of lasting power of attorney. I think maybe the message about these are that you probably do need to seek legal support in getting your lasting powers of attorney together because the wording of them can be quite complex, can't it? And and, and tricky. So if you feel like you'd like to, to leave your wishes with somebody else, a lasting power of attorney is a, is a good way to go forward. And the other one, of course, is a will. As you rightly said, Leslie, many, many of us do already have a will. And a will, of course, is a legal document stating what you would like after your death. And again, you can make a will um, with legal representation. You can make a will with some charities, can't you? Um, They have a free will writing service. Um, And for those who feel more confident, you can actually buy a sort of DIY kit to do your will. Leslie, are there any other sort of legal aspects to preparing for this situation that uh, our listeners should be aware of? When you go into looking at the lasting power of attorney, I think that you need to be the one who's driving this that it's something that you want to do and that you feel comfortable with. One of the, because it's a legal tool, it lets you choose people who you would really trust. And I think that sometimes can be quite a dilemma because we might feel that we have to always have our nearest and dearest. You might, might make that decision, but you could also name a dear friend, somebody who's been in the family a long while, someone who would be a real advocate. And if you know there was decisions to be made, that person might come along and say, oh, no, she wouldn't like that at all. I think that kind of levels things and it makes mm. them feel a lot more confident. I think if you have a lasting power of attorney, particularly if you have a diagnosis of dementia, it's extremely useful because there can be many, many complications as people move through and their dementia progresses. I think if you are just thinking about what it is that you want to say, you would do well to look at websites which give you information. Age UK have a really good fact sheet. You can look at places like Compassion in Dying. They will give you some ideas but be sure what it is that you want to make your wishes about. 
that's incredibly important, isn't it? That it's driven by the person whose wishes are going to be represented in that lasting power of attorney. And I think it's probably just worth mentioning that for them to become legal documents, they need to be registered with the Office of the Public Guardian, don't they? And that can take some time. So again, there's another reason for being proactive about thinking about what your wishes might be and getting your lasting powers of attorney in place now, pop them in a box and, and get on with, with living. And remembering we don't have to use them until we need them. So all Indeed. the time that we are perfectly able to make our own decisions, these don't come into play. It's only when we are unable to make our decisions that they come into mm. play. So moving away from the legal aspects, what what other practical ways can we as individuals um, make our wishes known? I've heard about things like advanced care plans and things like that. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. Lots of people don't get to make a lasting power of attorney because it's too difficult for them. But you can always be in control of what your wishes are. So this is about telling your important people, talking to your GP, talking to the clinic. When you, If you've got a long-term condition, you go to the clinic, telling people what it is that you want. These are some of the decisions we have to think about. Do we want to be resuscitated? Do we want to go on a ventilator? Do we want to have antibiotics? Do we want to have other life-preserving or life-saving treatments? We might want absolutely everything, all the bells and whistles, and never say no. That's fine. Let's tell everybody that that's what you want. Others of us may be thinking, well, actually, I don't really think that I want to have that treatment, or I'm at a stage in my life when I don't want anything else. Now, these are difficult decisions to make because we have to talk to our important people about this. And particularly if we want to stop having treatments, our loved ones really sometimes find that very difficult. So in these circumstances, it's really handy to have talked to your healthcare professional, whoever that is, and let them talk with you, let you know what to say, how to share it. But most important, you need to get your confidence and say to your nearest and dearest, this is what I would like. So, Leslie, I think we've both witnessed in our clinical practice times where, you know, the, the lack of knowing the wishes of the individual can cause distress within families. So that's another really good reason, isn't it, for making sure your wishes are known and noted down somewhere as you say, with your GP or, or with your family, to reduce the amount of, of guessing, to reduce any conflict between family members? Would you say that's true? Yes, I've witnessed this too. And it is indeed really distressing. And I think that for that person who is so unwell and wanting things to happen, and they can see that there is conflict within the family because they haven't discussed it with the siblings and the siblings are arguing. It's really difficult to know what to do. And if you're a healthcare professional who's having to make this decision about what the next course of treatment is going to be, it's very difficult for you too because you've got two fractions of a family 
both wanting different things. And I think that that often happens around do not resuscitate. And I think that this is a really important issue. But actually, when you if you make a decision about not wanting to be resuscitated, it just means that it means when your heart has stopped or you stop breathing or actually you're really dead, you won't be resuscitated because either you didn't want it or perhaps it would mm. be futile. But what the problem is, is that so many of us haven't had that conversation. And the reason we don't have it is because we're really scared that if we say we don't want to be resuscitated, then we won't get anything else. We think there's no other treatment. And of course, that's absolute rubbish. If you'll make that decision, you don't want to be resuscitated. It's just about that. You'll still have pain relief, symptom control, anything else, food, fluids, anything else that you need. But it's just that one treatment that people won't receive. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's a really valid point. And another reason to have those conversations, not only with your family, but maybe with a with a healthcare professional, if you have a long term condition or a life limiting condition, to have those conversations and really understand what does do not resuscitate mean? Because as you rightly say, it doesn't mean that you can't have pain relief. It doesn't mean that you can't have symptom control. It doesn't mean you can't have antibiotics for an infection. What it does mean is that those amazing people are not going to give you chest massages and, and, and ventilation, as you say, should your heart stop. I think it's a really important thing for people to understand that the language that can be used around these times can be quite complex, but also very specific. So if you would want to talk about do not resuscitate orders, I think it's really important to talk to a healthcare professional and really understand what it is that you are talking about and what you're signing up to if you are asked to, to sign one of those do not resuscitate orders. Now, we don't want to get people worrying about having a, a having a cardiac event <laughs> um, during this podcast, Leslie, but I think that was a really, really important topic um, to cover. Let's go back to conversations. Let's go back to having those conversations with our nearest and, and dearest. And I know as somebody that's worked in end-of-life care that I'll bring the subject up and my family will go, here she goes again, talking, <laughs> talking about death and dying and planning for death and dying. But actually, my family, whilst they joke with me, they know that all of, all of my paperwork, all of my wishes are in a box in my office under my desk should they ever need them. And they're really actually reassured by that, by knowing that, you know, those thoughts and those conversations we've had are, are under the desk there. But Leslie, have you got any tips maybe for people who want to have those conversations, start those conversations, but are maybe a bit worried that they're going to upset their family or their friends? We'll know if we're going to upset them. We know if people are a bit sensitive about it. So we have to pick our time. So you could do something like, oh, Mrs. Smith down the road, I heard that she died the other day. Oh, I wonder what's going to happen to her, what she wanted to have to happen, what's going to happen to her caravan or a dog. And it's things like that, that then you can start off having a very high level, bit of a lighthearted conversation. 
And then you can bring it into really talking about the main issues. But the tip is you've got to start it somehow. A little while ago, when I was working, um, looking at some insight work, when I was writing another book about death and dying, we did a lot of polling and we were looking at who were the best people to start these conversations with. And interestingly, it's our grandchildren. So our grown up grandchildren or, you know, probably about 10, 11, starting at that age when they, you know, they know that the rabbit dies and the guinea pig dies. And they are very open to having these conversations. And then they go home and they chat to their mum and dad about it. And then before you know it, you've got a whole load of people wanting to talk together about what we all want. It's about what everybody wants. Yeah, and I think that really is important, isn't it? I'm a strong advocate for age-appropriate conversations um, with with children well before a lack of capacity or, or death. Um, occurs and they're so pragmatic and they're so enlightening about about these things aren't they and um, I I will never forget talking to my own children when they were very very young as my nana was approaching the end of end of her life and they were just yeah so straightforward about it and it was it was a relief actually to chat with them and it meant that then I could take them along to the funeral and they understood what was happening and I know that cousins of mine who who didn't have those conversations with children within the family really had difficulty with their children afterwards because Nana had just disappeared. And um, they have no understanding. Yeah. Absolutely. And children do understand and they shouldn't really be left out of conversations if it's at all possible. No. And there are lots of resources, actually, aren't there, to help parents oh. and grandparents talk to children about about illness and about death and, and dying and loss as well. So um, I think we would both advocate for involving children in an age-appropriate way, wouldn't we, in those yes, in those definitely. conversations. And they might even want to pick a bit of music, a bit of music that, you know, was very special to them and and that person who, who has died. So uh, And write be, a poem. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Or even decorate, de- decorate the coffin. I mean, there's so many opportunities to involve the younger people. And the more we do that the less mystery and fear there is around death because it's been medicalized so much. Mm. We actually sometimes forget that this is just a natural progression of life. You're born and you die and the things in between. But obviously it's not always about older people in these situations. Young young people, young adults, people with young families um, also get diagnosed with life-limiting conditions or can find themselves in situations where they don't have capacity to make decisions through accident or or other illness. And I think some other things for for us all to think about is almost planning when we can have these conversations, when we have the time and the situation as a family, when the right people can be round, round the table together. So I think there's there's something about making sure that you you choose the right time and that you're prepared for that conversation, that maybe you haven't left it until the last minute, that you aren't rushed, that you have time to have the conversation and then come back together as a family to just start living again. You've had that conversation, you've made those plans, and then you can move forward again as a family or a group of friends. And I think, you know, whether that's you're talking to 
your spouse, you're talking to your parents, you're talking to your peers, it's important to understand that those conversations have an impact. They're difficult, challenging conversations to have. So make sure that you have some time around them. Make sure that you can come down from that conversation. Maybe have a glass of something if that's what you do as a family. Go for a walk. Look at the sunshine. Uh, watch your favourite film. And just come down from having those conversations together as a family. It's almost a, a privilege to be able to make those plans and do that preparing and and throw that kind of comfort blanket around the people who you are leaving behind, who are left grieving and mourning, to actually have given them that bit of a bit of reassurance that actually this is what I would like. So you're going to have so much to do after I've died that actually let's talk about some of those things now. And then you don't have to second guess me. You don't have to worry. You don't have to argue with each other because actually we've got this comfort blanket, which is been in a box under the desk for several years but now we can get it out and actually do something with it and I think that's just such an amazing thing that we can do for those people that we're leaving behind. I think and so and as you're saying you know wills we do our will we even plan our funerals we've got our burial plots and as I said before we do our social media but there's this reluctance to take that next step and I think we have to think, right, I've done all this. This is good. Now I need to, to get down to the nitty gritty of actually what I want to happen to me as I move on to the end of my life. Mm. Either, you know, as I can't make decisions or but as I become into that state when I can't make decisions. Yeah. And I think the other thing is that's important is if we do that in good time, then we can go back and revisit, can't we, yeah. as we get older. I, I sit here today with, as I said, everything un, under my desk, but actually in five or 10 years time, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm still here and haven't needed those plans, I might want to revisit them, mightn't I, because our circumstances change. And there's another opportunity then to revisit those conversations, catch up with, with family and friends, see if things have changed. You might have moved to a different part of the country or, you know, may have lost touch with somebody who was was previously terribly important within those plans so it's important isn't it to to make those plans but then revisit them on on a regular basis yes i think so and i think by filling your box you then can forget about it and start to do the things that are really important because who wants to think about the end of life you know it's better to start enjoying yourself but know it's all in hand and as you say, revisit it. And as things change and your condition and how you feel about things will change and then your decisions can change also. So this is this is a really difficult subject for, for many, many people. Um, Leslie, where would you suggest that people go to for more information and more support on having these sorts of conversations or really understanding what conversations would be helpful for them as individuals and also their friends and their family? I think looking at websites is really important. Compassion in Dying is a really good website that's got lots of help on there. On Age UK, there's a lot of information about what to do. The NHS website has got a great page on advanced care planning and things like that, which is really good to just have a glance mm -hmm. through. 
the Anne Robson Trust. Now, that's a great website. They do so much good work about having advanced conversations. And I think, you know, just have a good look around on the Internet and find things from reputable companies and reputable charities and do lots of research and reading and chat to your friends. The Age UK has got a line that's an information line that's open 365 days of the year from eight o'clock to seven o'clock. And you can find that on 0800-678-1602. And you can ring and talk to them if you're upset, if you're worried, if you don't know which way to turn, you can phone them and they will signpost you to the most appropriate help mm. they think that they can give. That's that's great. And I think I would I would add to that that actually if if it's a predicted end of life situation, you might want to to tap into your local hospice services. So they've always got people there that can can chat and give practical advice. But I think it's it is important, isn't it, to do a little bit of, of research, to have a little bit of thought about which parts of those conversations are, are most important to you. Because if you can't have the whole conversation, it's about the one thing that may be really, really important. And is that, please, you know, don't give me treatment that isn't going to, to cure me. Or is that, please make sure that I'm, I'm buried next to granny and not, not cremated and, and those sorts of things. So I think there's something about prioritising the areas that we really want to get those messages across, don't we? Or the areas that we think might be difficult for our family members to decide for us I think so I think we do need to spend a bit of time thinking about this because we're all so busy we're all rushing around we don't actually sit down and think what is important to us so all those things that you've said we should be making a list think about it tick it off and then I think we would feel much more content. And when we get the opportunity to have those conversations, we'll know what it is that we want to talk about and who we want to talk about it with and how to slip it into another conversation. Absolutely. Leslie, we've talked a lot in this podcast about preparing um, for loss of capacity and death and making our wishes known. And of course, that helps with how people cope with that situation. But bereavement and grief and mourning, of course, are incredibly challenging situations for some people, even if they were very prepared and even if they know that they met the wishes of their loved one. Um, where might people go to after somebody has died to get more support? I think, first of all, we have to um, accept in ourselves that the way we feel is quite normal and that this is how you feel when you've had a loss and that we should try not to be too fearful and too anxious and realize that in most cases the feelings of bereavement will work themselves out and you will feel that you are much more in control you can get help with counseling from crews you could go to the good grief trust which mm. has got lots of information about how to deal with grief. And I think speaking to your friends, you can go to your, your healthcare professional if you're feeling very down and very low. You can always speak to the Samaritans. They're always there. And sometimes it is when you wake up 
in the middle of the night and you feel absolutely dreadful, so sad with the weight of bereavement that you need someone to talk to right there and then. And the Samaritan yeah. is really good at doing that. But as you then can plan for things, having some counselling, perhaps a few weeks or months after your loss. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's really important, isn't it, to recognise that grief, bereavement, there is no there is no playbook for that. It is a completely and utterly unique experience. And it's OK to feel however you're feeling, because that's how you're processing the loss but it is important, I think, if you're feeling overwhelmed by that and out of control by the way you're feeling that you should you should seek support. Um, and, you know, if you ring Live Very Much and Helpline or Age UK helplines, I know that they would signpost people in the right direction. Yes. As I said at the beginning, Leslie, you and I are both very passionate uh, about this this subject. And I know for me all my years of experience, I have felt incredibly privileged to be alongside people who are facing the end of their life and supporting people who are, you know, witnessing that and experiencing grief and, and bereavement. And to witness a, a family coming together and being empowered by knowing information that they need, the wishes of their loved one has been a pleasure if I'm allowed to use that word throughout my career but what what motivates you Leslie to be so passionate about this subject? Oh it's really difficult to say isn't it but you know like you I've seen quite a lot of people die and families together families who have worked well together families in conflict mm. and I really believe that the reason these difficulties occur is because people don't have all the information that they need. Mm -hmm. And I think I've been really lucky after my NHS career to come with Age UK and do all this work, writing all these resources about how to be confident to make decisions and to deal with end of life, how to come out the other side and it's just something that I've I've really enjoyed. And I feel because I'm older now, much older, I see it from a very different angle. And I think that gives me a little bit of extra insight, mm. which I hope that I use sensibly and sensitively with the resources and the yeah. things that I do. And if you could just sum up your sort of take-home message. For people, Leslie, the one thing you'd like people to hear, what would that be? Get your courage in your hands and have that conversation with the people who are most important to you. Absolutely. I would completely and utterly second that. Have those, have those difficult conversations, make those plans, then pop them in a box and get on living with life. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much, Leslie. I really enjoyed that conversation. I think hopefully we've reassured um, people that are going to listen to the podcast that actually whilst this can be a really challenging thing to do, having these conversations and making those plans are really, really beneficial for everybody, not just for us as individuals, but for those people that are close and dear to us. And that when we've made those plans, we can pop them in a box 
and put them to one side and, and get on with living every moment of our lives. Hurrah for the box. Thank you. For more information about lymphoma and the support we can offer to people affected by the condition, please visit the Lymphoma Action website at www.lymphoma-action.org.uk. Lymphoma Action. Inform. Support. Connect.